Good morning, church. Grab a Bible. Stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Acts 13. That's page 921. The Bible's around the room. Hatchet throwing. I, I'm still stuck on that. I just can't get over that in my mind. Women, we take walks. We uh, talk to each other. We don't throw things at each other. It's just... Okay. <laughs> I, I'm just slightly blown away. Okay. Um, Acts 13, 1 through 12. And when I finish, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to respond, thanks be to God, because this is the living word of the Lord. All right. Acts 13, 1 through 12. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day, the day that we remember that you were not defeated by death. You ascended to the throne of heaven and sit at God's right hand. Father, we look forward to the day that you send your son back to us, that um, his second coming would be here. But in the meantime, Father, you have um, called us to be harvesters. Um, and Father, we pray that in our spirit, we would be calling to you and say, send me, Father, send me. Let us be that kind of people. And let us hear the words that Kyle has um, to offer today. Open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts. We just love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Melanie. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you didn't have a Bible open to that page, make sure you grab one of the ones around you right now and open it up to Acts 13. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, uh, that's on page 921. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one of those Bibles home with you. Um, bless you. <laughs> All right. Uh, we are glad to be here today. It's uh, Memorial Day. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Uh, and then it's also Ascension Sunday. That's pretty awesome for us as Christians. Because a lot of times we talk about Jesus as like, you know, he came and 
Then he died and he resurrected. And then we, it's like he evaporated or something. But he didn't evaporate. He's on his throne right now. And he's bodily on his throne. And he's one day coming again. And that is the hope of Christianity. And so if you're new to our church, welcome here. And we're excited to share this hope with you. And uh, we're not going to force you to believe anything you don't want to believe. You are welcome to come here with all of your questions and uh, doubts and struggles. We all have those too. Um, And we don't think that we're like a bunch of good people. That's not why we're here. We're here because we know that we're bad people, but we worship a great God who's gracious and loving to us even when we don't deserve it. And um, today we are continuing our march through the entire book of Acts, and we're in this middle section that we're titling Revival and Reconciliation. The word revival means uh, to be awakened to the beauty of God, and the word reconciliation means when two parties have been separated, they're brought together to be united again. And that's what this art represents here. Uh, It's a picture of uh, when something is shattered, when you put it together. It's it's a Japanese form of art that they put their shattered uh, glasses and stuff like that together with gold as a picture that when people are reconciled together, it's more beautiful afterwards than it was even before. And so that's what we're going through. And um, today, the, the, the title of the sermon is reconciliation is the mission. And the big idea is that God has people all over the world who've been separated from him, but whom he wants to bring close to himself. Uh, you know, and I've been doing a lot of like gardening and stuff this last week because we had to put in a yard to please the HOA in my backyard. And so we were, we've been doing a lot of work back there. And um, laying sod and putting in, uh, you know, all the trenching and the pipe and all this stuff. And so I got a lot of uh, agrarian things on my mind right now. So the thing that made me think in this passage was this, is that God has a harvest and he sent the church to reap. I've been thinking about that a lot because I'm like planting trees with fruit. And I'm like, man, I'm like planting cherry trees. And I'm like, this is going to be so good. I'm like looking forward to the harvest. And, in, and there, there's a sense where God is a loving God in heaven and he's looking forward to the harvest. And he sent us as a church to reap. And every single time somebody believes in him, God rejoices in heaven. It says that there's more rejoicing in heaven uh, when, like, before the angels when a sinner repents to God than anything that there is on earth. Because God loves the fact that people are being drawn to him. So that's my main point. So let's get after it. Um, we're going to cover it with three points today. There's a harvest, and, and to reap this harvest, it takes people staying and people going. It takes hard work and courageous confidence, and it takes open doors and gospel announcement. So that's what we're going to go through. So verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13 says, Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod of the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the first point here is that uh, God is sending his church into the harvest. And what that requires is it takes people going and it takes people staying. Prayerful going and prayerful staying. If you notice in this first paragraph, it begins and has in the middle and has at the end 
the church leaders praying. The church leaders praying. And that actually is a pattern through the book of Acts, is as people are praying, God speaks to them, or God guides them to people whom he wants to save. So anybody ever want to hear the voice of God? I do. Everybody, anybody ever want to be like, man, I just wish God would guide me in my life? I do. Well, what is our responsibility in this? We have to quiet our hearts and our minds to pray first. And it's oftentimes that when people are sitting in prayer for prolonged periods of time that God speaks. And that's what we want to be as a church. We want to be a praying church. And what God says is, I want you to set aside this guy named Saul, who's also called Paul. Saul's his Hebrew name. Paul is a, his Roman name. And Barnabas, we're going to call him Barney for the rest of the day. Saul and Barney, I want you to set them aside for this work that I've have for them. And what this shows us is that God has a harvest. And he wants people to go into the harvest. Jesus himself said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into it. And so what happens is Paul and Barnabas get sent out. But if you notice, the majority of the people in this church end up staying. They end up staying. And so this church is the church in Antioch, and it's a good model church for us. And the reason why is, number one, because they're a praying church. That's what we want to be for as Living Stones. I want to be a praying church. Second thing, they have diverse leadership. And we know this because of the different um, people mentioned here of the church leaders. So they have Barnabas, who is a very encouraging man. His his name means son of encouragement. We have uh, Simon or Simeon called Niger. He was a man uh, most likely because Niger means dark. Most likely he had dark skin. Lucius of Cyrene, he was a Roman. They had Saul, who was a Jew, and they had this guy named Manan, who was a foster child who grew up with a king named Herod the Tetrarch. So he grew up this posh life, and he was probably at this time an old man in his 60s. So they had this very diverse leadership, and that's actually a good model for us as a church. We want to be a church of very diverse leadership, of different ages and socioeconomic statuses and and, uh, different races, because that is a picture of the kingdom of God. And this church also was a model for us because they were willing to make sacrifices to send people off. Um, They sent off Paul and Barney. Like, Barnabas is the most encouraging guy in the Bible. I wouldn't want to let him leave my church. (laughs) And Paul is the best theologian in the Bible. He writes most of the New Testament. Like, where we get all of our theology, for the most part, from the New Testament comes from Paul. He was like, these are the all-stars of church history. And this church sacrificially says, we will send our best people for the sake of the mission. Why? Because we believe God has a harvest. We believe God has a harvest. Um, And what's interesting here is Paul knew he was going to go to be a missionary for a long time. Because... 15 years earlier, Paul had had this vision of Jesus. Jesus had appeared to Paul and said, I'm going to send you into the whole world. I'm going to send you to all nations. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And Paul knew for 15 years. And I bring that up because of this. Paul knew that he was supposed to go, but he didn't go until God gave him direction and the, and the church affirmed it. And there's a lot of young leaders in the church who get very passionate and eager and say, I need to go but they try to do it without the church's approval and without God's appointment. And what this is a reminder to us is this, is that 
if Jesus is the Lord of the harvest, we need to wait for his command to go. And so if you're somebody in here who's very eager, maybe you're a young person or or perhaps even somebody who's older and you say, I know that God wants me to do, my encouragement to you is present that to the church and wait till God speaks through the church because that's how God operates in the entire scriptures. So these guys go, but here's what I want you to notice. A majority of them stay because the mission of God requires people both going and staying. Like when I was a little kid, I grew up in, I've been a Christian for a long time and I grew up in church. I always thought missionaries, we would have these things where missionaries would come during the weeknights and they would like come and they would show us pictures of them and like loincloths in the middle of a jungle of like Papua New Guinea and the spears and the weird food that we ate, they ate. And uh, it was really cool and intriguing. But in my mind, I'm always like, okay, missionaries are like Christian superheroes, that have to go into foreign places. And in a sense, that is true. Missionaries do go. But what I missed growing up is missionaries also stay. Because the mission is not just across the world, it's also across the street. And it's also next, next door. And that, that is what we need to understand. Um, like this last, uh, the other night I watched that movie, Hidden Figures. Have you guys seen that movie? It's about... Uh, it's about these three women, these three black women who uh, were very smart. They were like geniuses, and they helped accomplish um, John Glenn orbit the Earth for the first time uh, in the United States. And what this was, it was like, you know, when we're trying to send somebody an orbit around the Earth, or when we're trying to send somebody to a space station, or we're trying to send somebody to the moon, what does it require? It requires people going, but it also requires people staying. That's how the mission is accomplished. And in the same way in the church, the mission of God cannot be accomplished unless people go and people stay. So here's what I want you to ask. You need to ask this question. God, am I called to go? Have the courage to ask that question. Because the reality is that some of you in here might be called to go to another country to, sp- to speak the gospel or help people out. Two weeks ago, we just sent out Angela Carey. She just moved to Guatemala for who knows long, how long. <laughs> And she's going to start medical missions down there. She's, going to, she's a nurse, and she's going to start caring for the people there and also speaking the gospel to the people down there. She didn't know she was going to go until she did a short-term mission trip down there, and God said, I want you to move down here. So she did. Maybe that is you. Maybe you're called to go. The nations need to be reached. Um, maybe it's not to another nation. Maybe it's, you need to start another church. You know, we have about seven or eight guys who've been prayer walking a certain area of uh, Sparks, kind of in between the uh, uh, inside of McCarran and Pyramid. And they've just been praying that area. And they eventually want to go plant another church there. As this church here, we need to be willing to send those people out if it's God calling us to do that. And maybe you're called to go be a part of that church. Living Stones, we have a, a hope to plant 10 churches all over northern Nevada in the next 10, church, next 10 years. Maybe you're called to be a part of that. And I know that's uncomfortable sometimes. But if we believe that there's a harvest, we would be willing to go. We'd be willing to go. And at a smaller level, some of you are in like Bible studies and community groups that are really big. It's time for you to multiply. But you're like, I don't want to multiply because I just love this person's cookies, you know, that they bring every week. <laughs> But listen, I know that it's hard because you've built deep relationships with those people. But remember, this is not about us. It's about the glory of God. It's about the glory of God. 
So we need to go. Second thing is you might need to ask the question, am I called to stay? And if you see yourself as somebody who's staying, do you see yourself as a staying missionary? A lot of times in our church, we have, a, we have a handful of different people in our church. We have some people who are young and some people who are more seasoned in life. And what I hear from the more seasoned people a lot is they say, you know, I, was, I did that stuff, that missionary stuff, and told people about Jesus when I was younger. I'll let the young people take care of that. I'm retired now. There's no such thing as a retired Christian. And if you consider yourself a retired Christian, have you forgotten how beautiful our Lord is? You see, Charles Spurgeon said, Everybody is either, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. There's no way that you can behold the beauty of Jesus Christ and be like, yeah, I'm going to keep this to myself. Like, you don't do that with a sunset. You don't do that with a great movie. You don't do that with a great uh, meal. You tell everybody about it when you have that. When you realize how beautiful Jesus is, you're going to want to tell other people about it. Which, for a moment, I just would like to speak to those of you who are not Christians in here. You might be asking the question, why are you always trying to push Jesus on me? We're not trying to push Jesus on you. It's just that we're so captivated with how awesome he is, we want you to know him. That's all that is. Like, if you met a doctor who had a cure to cancer, you would be blabbing your mouth about that doctor to everybody. And we have met the great doctor, who has a cure not just to cancer, but to, to all of death and to forgiveness of sins. and uh, He is the great doctor. He can provide healing for every soul. There is no life without Jesus. And so we want everybody to know him. And so Christian, if you find yourself not motivated to talk about Jesus, what you need to be praying is, God, show me your beauty so that I can be motivated to be a missionary. So I can be motivated. So it's going to take people going and people staying. That's what we see here. Now, when people go and when people stay, here's what we need to know. It takes hard work and it takes courageous confidence. That's what we see in the next section. So verses 4 through 12. So we'll start with verse 4. It says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So just notice that it says that they were sent out by God, the Holy Spirit. And they, they know that because it was affirmed also by the church. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of the Lord in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So, um, and <clears throat> so what we see here is that these guys, they, um, they go out. Now, here's a picture. Let's put a picture on the screen of where they go, okay? So they started here in Antioch, and then they sailed to this island of Cyprus, And then they are eventually going to sail up over here to what is called modern-day Turkey. So first, they sail to Cyprus, and they go to the place called Salamis. I love that name. It's like Salamis. Maybe they invented Salami. I don't know. They go there. And then after they go there, what they end up doing is they go to every synagogue across the way along the southern part of the island, which is a hundred-mile journey, all the way over to Paphos. And they just go and they tell people about Jesus and then they travel on. They tell people about Jesus and they travel on. And so what I want you to know is this, is that it takes hard work. It takes hard work. A hundred mile journey. That's a long journey. On foot. No cars. No trains. No airplanes. A hundred mile journey on foot. Um, They were willing to put in the hard work. 
Um, at the end of this whole journey, when they return, they travel by foot and by boat 1,200 miles. I was talking to somebody earlier to Scarlett in the back. She said, that's like going from here to Louisiana. This mission sometimes takes very hard work, very hard work. And, um, you know, a lot of times I, my dad owned a construction business growing up. So I would work and a lot of times the workers would say, work smart, not hard. You know what I'm saying? And they, they do both. They work smart and they work hard. So here's how they work smart. So first of all, they choose Cyprus as the place to go because Barney had relatives there. That's where he was from. And a lot of people think that when you start to share Jesus, you need to start to, you just need to go up to strangers and say, have you heard about Jesus? But that's actually not how the mission works. These guys started with people they knew, with people they knew. So they did work smart. Secondly, they went together. And the reason they went together is because the more witnesses equals the more power of the message. Um, They were testifying together that Jesus really is alive and he really has ascended. And then finally, they went to synagogues. And what a synagogue is, is it's a Jewish place of worship. And in synagogues, every single day, they read the Old Testament of the Bible. Every single day. And so that was a very strategic move because they started with what people already knew about God. And then they showed them that their hope in God actually was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so this gives us some encouragement as we go out on mission to work smart. But we also have to remember it is some hard work. 100 miles on foot. So then you need to have courageous confidence. Look at verse 6 and 7. It says, When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So as they made it over to Paphos, this uh, says proconsul, which is like a governor. The governor invites him over to his house. So they go to the governor's mansion. And as they're in the governor's mansion, they have this interaction with a magician. The magician's name is Simeon or Simon Bar-Jesus. And uh, it says that he's a Jewish false prophet. So he's, it's kind of an oxymoron, a Jewish magician. The reason why that's an oxymoron is because in the Bible, in Deuteronomy, God forbids sorcerers and magicians. Because what sorcery and magicians do is they twist things of this nature to try to manipulate their audience. Or they access the spiritual realm that is not from God, They access the demonic realm and use demonic powers to do things in this world. And demons are real, the Bible says, and they do have power in this world. And they've been around for a very, very long time since the beginning of creation. So they're very smart. And so the Bible forbids those kind of practices. And so this guy, he did have power. He did have power. And so they come into contact with him. And it says here in verse 8, it says, but Elimus which means wonder worker, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So as these guys are telling uh, the governor about Jesus, this magician starts speaking to the governor and saying, no, don't believe these guys. They're crazy. And look at what Paul says. Here, verses 9 through 11. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see for the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. 
Now, I'm not recommending you say that to your friends who don't believe in Jesus. <laughs> you son of the devil, blindness be on you. <laughs> That's not what's going on here. But what is happening here is there is a power struggle. And the apostle Paul sees it, and he confronts it head on with courage and confidence in the power of God. Um, and, and he calls him son of the devil. The reason being is because Simon Bar-Jesus means son of the Savior. And Paul says, you're not son of the Savior. You're son of the devil because you're rejecting truth and you're twisting it. And he says that you are making uh, the straight path of the Lord crooked. And that's what sorcery does. It takes real power, but it twists truth just enough to get you to go away from Jesus. To go away from Jesus. And so Paul rebukes this man and it says, filled with the Holy Spirit, he uh, casts a spell, in a sense, on him and the man goes blind. Now what that is, is it's, it's God saying this, oh, you think you're powerful? Let me show you who's really powerful. I'm going to make you have darkness. Now darkness in the Bible, for this guy, was a sign of the state of his soul. He thought he had power, but he was really spiritually blind. But then it's also a sign of judgment in the Bible. And what this is, is God telling him, if you continue to go on this crooked path, you will be judged and your life will be apart from God. You will not be able to see the sun, which is a symbol of God's presence. You will not be able to see the sun. And this man had to be taken away and led by the hands. This man who thought he was powerful realized how weak he really was. And it says, upon this happening, look at verse 12. It said, then the governor believed. He saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And so what this shows us here is that in this power struggle, because God has a harvest, God is committed to showing that he's the greatest power in the entire universe. He's committed to it. This reminds me of a story that I heard a few years ago when I was doing some school for studying the Bible. I ran into a pastor who had a guy uh, come to his church. Now this guy came to, his, he came to his church and he had just been out at Burning Man. Now, Burning Man, um, he got into doing some different uh, sorcery and uh, black magic out of Burning Man, and he said a, a spell got cast upon him, and from that day, he was being tormented. But he also, on that day, received power, he said. And so he came to this church. I don't know how he ended up at church, but he came to church, and he walked up to the pastor after service, his pastor, Bill Clem, and he came up to him, and he said, Pastor Clem, you don't understand. He said, I have power. And Pastor Bill Clem, filled in the Holy Spirit, just looked at him and said, and laughed and said, I have more. I have God. And the guy testifies that at that moment, he felt all of his power and the spiritual beings in him come up like this on the roof in fear. And that was the moment he realized that Jesus is the greatest power in the universe. And he believed. And he became a musician at their church. (laughs) You see, Jesus is the greatest power in the universe. And I love how the Bible doesn't ignore that there's real weird stuff out there. Like those movies that you see that freak us all out. That stuff, in some senses, is very real. And it's out there, and it's powerful. But it's nothing in comparison to the power of Jesus Christ. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, this, you, this might sound really weird to you. But you need to ask Jesus, if you really are real, you need to show me that you're more powerful than anything else. You need to show me. You need to prove it. Pray that prayer, and I promise you that he will. That's what he does here. You see, they put in the hard work. Paul, I mean, that took a lot of courage, I'm sure, for Paul to do that. 
How was it that they were able to put in this hard work, travel a hundred miles? You know, what if Paul got seasick? That would suck. That would be a long trip on the boat to, to get seasick. And then journey on foot and then to have this kind of confidence in, a, in the presence of a man who has some sort of power. The only way is if he really believed that there was a harvest. You know, like I said, I've been putting in work in my yard, like doing an irrigation system. And like, I'm pretty sure plumbers invented cuss words. <laughs> and I'm like putting this in and I'm like sweating. And one day it was raining and I was just, my neighbors were just like, they just drive by and honk. Hey, you know, like, thank you, neighbor. <laughs> and I'm out there, but I had one thing on my mind that one day I was going to lay sod and sod is like better than heroin because you just put it down and it's like instant gratification, right? And I just threw that down and I was like, this is the best thing in the world. So what motivated me to continue putting in the hard work and continue battling through all the hard stuff? The harvest, the end result. And Christian, let me just encourage you, brothers and sisters, If you're called to go, it will be the hardest thing that you ever do. If you're called to stay, what is going to keep you motivated to love the people that are unlovable in your life? To open up your homes week in and week out to be hospitable and to share the gospel, even when you're tired? What's going to keep you going in your prayer so that you don't give up? What's going to keep you going, young Christian, so that you can continue being a missionary for the next 40 years of your life? The end result, that God has a harvest that God wants to save some of your neighbors and some of the people in our city. And what's going to give us the courage in the face of opposition? When you're at the college and the professors mocking Christianity and mocking Jesus and mocking you. When they're saying you're wrong or you're crazy or perhaps even you're evil. The only answer is that if we really believe God wants to work in this world, that will give us the courage to stand up in the face of this opposition. God has a harvest and he sent us as the church to reap. So lastly, in order to reap this harvest, it's going to take open doors and gospel announcement. Open doors and gospel announcement. And here we get into a long sermon of the Apostle Paul, but we'll go through pretty quickly, okay? So verses 13 and 14, it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So they set sail from here. And they go up to Perga, which is really cool because right now we are supporting a church planter in Italia, Turkey. So they're going to a place where we're funding some church planters. That's pretty cool. So they go up there to Perga, and then they make another trek up to Antioch. Now notice in verse 13 that it says that John Mark left them. Now this comes up later um, in in a couple chapters, but we don't know why John left him, but we know that it really ticked Paul off. Okay. So it really ticked him off. So that's just an encouragement too, that sometimes when you're on mission, you're going to have people you thought who were with you leave you. And that hurts. It really hurts. Okay. But they get up there, verse 14, but they went to Perga and came to Antioch of Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went in the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the ruler of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have a word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, and he began his sermon. So here's, here's what happens. They go into the synagogue and they sit down and they hear the reading of the Bible. And what does God do? He opens up a door. He gives them an opportunity. 
I mean, Paul is a very educated Jewish man, and he probably talked and looked the part. So they're just sitting there receiving the word, and the pastor's probably like, this guy's a better preacher than me. Why don't you come up here and give the message today? And he's like, do you have a word of encouragement? And Paul's like, as a matter of fact, I do. <laughs> I came here to give you a word of encouragement about Jesus. And Paul gets up, and he, and he begins this long sermon. Now, the sermon breaks up into three parts, and here's what I want you to know about the parts. The first part is Paul gives a summary of the Old Testament. The second part, Paul tells them that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And then the third part, Paul makes an invitation to believe in Jesus. Now, what you need to know, because we're going to read this sermon, is it might sound confusing to you. It wasn't confusing to them because the scriptures that Paul quotes, they read on a regular basis. They read on a regular basis. And that just gives us a little understanding of how Paul did his mission work. He started with the basis of what people already knew. And then he worked from there to tell them about Jesus. That's what good missionaries do. Okay? So he started with the basis of what, Paul, of what they already knew. So he says this. Men of Israel. I just picture it. Paul was a little guy too, so he's probably like, Men of Israel. And you who fear God. Listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave the judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. So Paul, speaking to this Jewish audience, recaps in a paragraph the entire history of the Old Testament, or most of the history of the Old Testament. And he says... Uh, you know, God chose our fathers. And then he brought them to Egypt and he grew them to be this great people, about 2 million people in Egypt. And then he delivered them out of Egypt. And then he brought them through the wilderness to this promised land. And then he eventually gave them the promised land by defeating their enemies. And Paul says that took all of of about 450 years for God to do that, which is just a reminder to us that God works really slow sometimes. 450 years. But then the people, and then God gave them judges who were like rulers, but not king. Because God was their king at that time. But the people wanted a king. They wanted somebody that they could physically see. So they asked for a king, and God said, fine, choose yourself a king. And they chose for themselves Saul, who was a, he was a bad king. It didn't work out too well. So then after Saul ruled, then God gave them a better king named David. And David, God said, was a man who was after God's own heart. Now, David wanted to build a temple for God because at the time they were worshiping God in a tent. And he wanted to build a physical temple. David's like, I live in a palace. God, you should have a a building. And God said to him, no, David, you can't build me a temple. He said, but I'll give you a better promise. From your offspring will come the great king, the king who will save the entire world. And so the Jews would have been thinking about that as they heard Paul say this. Now, up until this point, they would have been giving him amens, you know, everything that preachers love to hear, that a boy, say that, mm, you know, all that stuff. They would have been doing that during this sermon so far. But then the tone changes. Look at verse 23. 
of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. At that point, the whole crowd would have been like, say what? Because Paul just said, the king you've been hoping for has come. And his name is Jesus. He's come. Now, they would have uh, either not have heard of Jesus at all because they didn't have CNN or Fox News or CBS. They didn't have Facebook or Twitter. They didn't have anything to get the news out there. They just had word of mouth. They didn't have newspapers. So they would have either not have heard of Jesus at all, or they would have heard rumors of Jesus, but now hear this great teacher, this profound speaker is saying, Jesus really is the king of the Old Testament. So they're baffled. And it says here in verse 24, and before his coming, okay, uh, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And John was finishing his course. He said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me is one coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. So these people probably hadn't heard of Jesus, but they had heard of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was considered a great Jewish prophet. And many people thought he was the Messiah. But Paul just says here that when John the Baptist was doing his ministry, John said, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not even worthy. After me is somebody coming who will be the Messiah, and I'm not even worthy to be his slave. Okay, and then Paul continues in verse 26. He says, Brothers, the son of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled by them by condemning him. And though they found him no guilty, no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written to him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So Paul starts to speak the gospel here. And he said, when Jesus came, the religious leaders in Jerusalem rejected him. They missed that he was the promised king of the Old Testament. And even though he was innocent, they had him killed. They had him crucified on a cross. And then they buried him in a tomb. It's important to recognize that Jesus actually died. He went into a tomb. But then in verse 30, he says, but God raised him from the dead. Hallelujah, church. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to his people. So he says, God raised him from his dead. He appeared to many people and they're all witnessing for God. And then Paul says this beautiful line, and we bring to you the good news that God has promised to the fathers, that he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. So what happened is, is Paul is preaching and he uses two of their favorite songs of the Psalms. And, and he speaks to them and he says, hey, um, you guys sing this Psalm. About David, you think it's about David, where David says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And Paul says, no, no, no. David died and was buried, and he's still dead. He saw corruption. But Jesus, he died and was buried, but God raised him from the dead. He did not abandon Jesus to corruption. So in verse 36, it says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. 
And then here's the big idea. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Hallelujah. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So here's the whole big idea. If I could just have your attention in the whole service for this one moment. This is the biggest deal in this whole text. What's the big deal with Jesus? Paul says, because Jesus raised from the grave, you can be forgiven of your sins. When you sin against God, God says the wages of sin is death. The only way out of receiving death is if a king comes for you and conquers death on your behalf. Jesus has done that. You can be freed from your sins. You can be freed from the things that you hate about yourself. From all the striving and effort you you make to be obedient to God and all of your failures, you know what they are when you lay your head down at night and you start to think about eternal things. You 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 don't have to have any fear anymore because you can be delivered and forgiven from the things you did yesterday and last night and this weekend and 20 years ago, which you told nobody about. You can be forgiven. That's beautiful news. And it says you can also be delivered from the burden of the law of Moses. You see, the law of God, what he's referring to is basically like the Ten Commandments. The law of God is beautiful, but it's also burdensome, isn't it? You want to know what the Ten Commandments are? There's, you shall have no other God before me. You shall not worship idols. You shall not take the God, God's name in vain. Say his name lightly. You shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother your whole life. You shall uh, not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. Like you shall not look at your neighbor and be like, I really want that boat. (laughs) That's a beautiful thing, right? Like the world would be a really beautiful place if we just all live by the Ten Commandments. But it's a burdensome thing because we know how short we follow those commandments all the time. And the reason... Why it's burdensome is because in the Old Testament, when they were trying to live according to the law, they had to make all these sacrifices in order to be in relationship with God. And Paul is saying to them, you don't have to do that anymore because Jesus has already done it for you. He's been obedient to the law on your behalf, so that's delivered from you. And he's been the perfect sacrifice so you can be made clean. It's a beautiful thing. And some of you need to hear that today because you think the only way you get to God is by being a good person. That's not the way you get to God. You'll never be good enough. The way you get to God is by Jesus, who was the good person. It's only through him. So then Paul makes an invitation to believe. He says, beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and and perish. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. So what Paul does is he quotes to them a familiar prophecy in which God said to the people, one day I'm going to do a work that's so great, when somebody tells you, you probably won't believe. It'll be too good to be true. And what Paul says to them is this. He says, don't fulfill that prophecy. Don't fulfill that prophecy. Believe in Jesus. Okay, now let's look at the response as we close up here. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. They were hungry for grace. They begged. What if people begged to come to church? And after meeting the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Jerusalem followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. 
Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Can you imagine? The whole city gathered. That's a city who is hungry for God. And this, we need to be praying, God, do it again. Do it again. It says, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with what, church? Jealousy. And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So uh, here's what happens. The Jews saw the crowds coming together. And they were jealous because they wanted people to focus on themselves instead of focus on the message. Here's what I want you to know today. Focus on yourself will prevent you from seeing God. Focus on yourself will prevent you from seeing God. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life before, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. So all the Gentiles are there. They're hearing this this message about God. And Gentiles just means non-Jews. And they were there. And the Jews had been telling them, God doesn't love you. You can't know God unless you become one of us. You're too messed up. You're unclean. You can't know God unless you become clean. And Paul says, actually, now you can. And so all the Gentiles are like, that's awesome. They get pumped. And they start throwing a party. And the Jews incite a riot against them. And it says uh, that as many of the Gentiles that were appointed to eternal life believed. Here's what I want you to know with that. God had an appointed harvest. And God does have an appointed harvest all over the world. And as we speak the gospel boldly, whoever's appointed to believe will believe. Whoever's appointed to believe will believe. And in verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Lord, do it again. But the Jews incited the devout men of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So they, they gathered a riot and drove them out of the town. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy with the Holy Spirit. So Paul and Barnabas said, fine, you don't want to hear it? We'll go to the next city. So here's what I want you to know. It takes open doors and gospel announcement. Paul and Barnabas did not initiate that conversation. God did. He opened the doors. But when God, when God opened the doors, what did they do? They spoke the gospel. The gospel is the message about Jesus. And the response was insane, wasn't it? The whole city ended up showing up to church. So one of the things that we can be daunted with as we think about this fact that God wants us to go tell people about Jesus in all the world, we could be like, really God, all the world? That's kind of intense. That's a little daunting. I'm just like a normal dude trying to figure out my own life. Like I don't even know what I'm going to eat next week, you know? But it's all about perspective. When you look at it through our eyes, our human perspective, the mission of God is daunting. But when you look at it from God's perspective, who's the Lord of the universe, it's totally manageable. Um, It said that in 1969, when we landed people on the moon, there was a picture that was taken of the earth. And Billy Graham, the great preacher, saw that picture and immediately prayed to God, God, earth is so small. Let's take the whole thing. Yeah. It was all about perspective. 
When you see that it's God who's the creator of the universe who wants to save people in all the earth, it's totally manageable. And our prayer becomes, God, let's take the whole thing. Let's take the whole thing. And so as a quick application for us, and then we'll close, is we need to be praying for God's open doors. As a Christian, you don't have to force the gospel into situations. You need to be praying that God would open up opportunities for you to talk. And when he does, you need to pray for the courage to speak the gospel clearly. And then uh, secondly, we need to pray that God would do it again. Lord, the whole city showing up to church. Lord, do it again. The real thing here is, is many of us don't believe that God would do something like that again. And we need to be confronted that God loves to do this kind of work. And if we ever doubt that God loves to save people all over the world and even save whole cities, we have to remember how far God was willing to go in order to save anyone. And how far he was willing to go is God the Father gave up his only son. And Jesus, as the son of God, came and he died a death as a criminal, even though he was innocent. And just think about it. We sang a song earlier. The soldiers were punching him in the face, saying, you think you're powerful? You're not powerful. Pilate mocked him and said, you think you're a king? You can't even deliver yourself from this death. But the reality all along was Jesus very well could have, but he chose not to. Because the only way to save his people is if he died. Because that's the only way. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And so if we ever doubt how far God is willing to go to save his people, we just need to look at the cross. But we also need to remember that he didn't stay on the cross. He is sitting bodily on his throne in heaven right now. And one day he is going to return and he's going to call all those who believe to him. And that's when the great harvest we will finally see. And it will be a glorious day. Amen, church? Amen. So let's pray and then we'll start singing some songs. Van, you can come on up. God, thank you for this uh, wonderful reality. God, thank you that in every way where we feel like we just don't want to make the sacrifice to take your message to people, we know that you made the ultimate sacrifice. And I pray that you would just encourage us today and that you would help us to continue worshiping you and uh, telling people about your glory. Amen.